plane touched down at 7 a.m. and I was not in a good mood. You see, this was my first of two flights for the day and I had deliberately booked my first flight at the crack of dawn. Because as frequent flyers know, the first flight of the day, plane's already at the airport. There's no chance of anything going wrong. And yet, we had been delayed for an hour and a half due to mechanical failures. So what had originally been a two hour leisurely layover where I was going to get coffee, get some breakfast, collect my thoughts for the day, was suddenly a 25 minute race. Speed walking through the airport, there was no time for anything but finding my gate. So I wasn't on my phone, I wasn't checking my emails, I wasn't listening to music, I was just focused. And off in the distance, 20 or 30 paces ahead of me, walking towards me, I saw him. And my sleep-deprived, frustrated brain said, you know, that short, bald guy kind of looks like Seth Godin. And then a few seconds later, I realized, oh my God, that is Seth Godin. I wasn't given any magical talent here. I have just done a bunch of tricks, and I'm happy to teach people how I do them. And I am fortunate in that it's broad enough that I can get to the heart of what I would teach no matter what I was teaching, which is confidence and humanity and our willingness to take responsibility. If the purpose of school is to get A's, then let's just give everyone an A. That's obviously not the purpose of school. Some people like milk chocolate. I still find this impossible to believe. You know, the word balance is a really tricky word because I don't think there's such a thing. There's just time. There's just where you are and what you do. And meanwhile, I've got my laptop open and I'm Googling. I don't even know what I'm Googling. People Seth Godin offended. Hey, hey, Brian Miller here and welcome to season two of One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. And oh my goodness, do we have an incredible lineup for you in season two. Today's guest is Seth Godin, often considered the father of modern marketing. And in the past decade, he's become something of a personal success guru. Seth is the author of 19 best-selling books, including Tribes, The Dip, Lynchpin, Purple Cow, and most recently, This Is Marketing. You can't be seen until you learn to see. Seth runs one of the world's most popular business blogs, a daily blog with over 7,000 posts and millions of loyal readers. He's reinventing education with an ever-growing series of online courses called the Akimbo Workshops, which are completely different than anything you've ever taken. Trust me, I know I've been through two of them. Now, if you're a bit of a Seth junkie like I am, you have probably listened to dozens, if not hundreds of interviews, conversations, and live speeches he's given over the years. And so I worked really hard to make this conversation completely unique, not just for us, but for Seth. And I really think we succeeded. You're going to hear him talk about some of the familiar territory, but in a completely different light from a completely different angle. In fact, at the beginning of the conversation, we spend a good amount of time exploring marketing and labels through talking about magic and magicians. The conversation moves to education. What is teaching? What's so wonderful about teaching? 
the current state of education, and where it might be going. As you might imagine, we spend a good amount of time discussing how to connect with others. And finally, Seth shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. And let me tell you, you need to buckle up for this one because not only does he tell me this is the first time he's ever told it in public, but the story itself is bananas. You're not going to believe it. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this incredible conversation with the one, the only, Seth Godin. Hey, Seth, thanks so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Good to talk to you. So you made your name and became a legend in the field of marketing, but lately I keep hearing yourself described as a teacher. What is the relationship between marketing and teaching? How did that shift happen? Well, I think it's a two-part answer. First of all, marketing is not advertising. I have never been about advertising. I'm not interested in spam or interrupting people. So I got into marketing because I think marketing is everything. I think marketing is how we change the culture. If people have pigeonholed me into a category that makes it easier for them to see my work, I don't care. It's fine with me. What do I do in marketing? I don't run uh, Airbnb and I don't run uh, an important nonprofit, nor do I run for office. What I do in marketing is I teach other people how I see and how they can see. So there are a hundred things I would love to teach. This is just the one that I have a pulpit to teach from. And I am fortunate in that it's broad enough that I can get to the heart of what I would teach no matter what I was teaching, which is confidence and humanity and our willingness to take responsibility. You know, if you want to teach someone to cook, you can say, here's a cookbook, follow the recipe, but you haven't really taught them to cook. But if you can give them the confidence to use salt properly and the confidence to taste something before they serve it, then you've taught them how to cook. I'm curious about the labels in particular, titles and labels. I go back and forth on how much they they matter. I, I feel like titles and labels don't matter as much externally as I thought they did when I was younger, just starting my career in terms of how other people saw me, but I find they really make a difference to my internal narrative. Mm -hmm. Like when you start calling yourself a teacher, you move through the world differently than when you call yourself a marketer. Yep. So I think you, you may have gotten around it, but just as a pointed question, what do you love most about being a teacher? The only thing I love about being a teacher is watching people change. You know, The Wizard of Oz, perhaps the greatest movie minute per minute of any movie ever made, the ending with the scarecrow getting the diploma did not make the scarecrow smarter, except it made the scarecrow smarter. And that is when we see the wizard for who the wizard really is. Not the medicine man, charlatan, not the guy who pretends to scare people, but the whole thing he's in it for is, can he create enough in status roles that he can give a worthless piece of paper to a man made out of straw that will enable that person to act the smart person that they actually are. You, when you speak about being a teacher, I first of all, you've been doing. Uh, are you actually calling them office hours on online? Yeah, I guess sometimes we do. In a recent Facebook Live, I actually heard you say, and this is, I think this was a direct quote. You said, "There is no magic Seth dust. I don't scale." Yeah, and. Yeah, it was such an interesting way of putting it. I think what you were getting at, as far as I can tell, is that 
individual connection, person to person, empathy, generosity, that isn't scalable the way that a business is. You only have so much emotional currency to give before you you burn out. Am I am I getting that? Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, you and I think a lot about <laughs> magic. And here, with the smile of a child in his first magic shop, Seth pulled out and fanned a pack of playing cards. There are two ways to do magic, maybe three. One way to do magic is to assert that you actually have supernatural powers, like Yuri <laughs> Geller. Another way to do magic is to assert that you've worked really hard to do something. And I would put Joshua J in that category. And the third way to do magic is to tell people you're doing a trick and then eventually relieve the tension by teaching them the trick. What I meant by dust, magic dust, is I don't have to be in the room for people to change. I don't have to have a conversation with you. That if I can put you in the room with someone else and you both have a conversation, it's quite likely a change will happen. So by me not scaling, I mean, I wasn't given any magical talent here. I have just done a bunch of tricks and I'm happy to teach people how I do them. <laughs> In that way, you're different than a lot of magicians, although there seems to be a trend more towards what you're talking about, even within the magic community. I know um, for for myself and a lot of you know my uh, my friends and colleagues in magic of my generation, we we, I was like kind of the end of the pre-digital revolution. Sure. I, can't, I was right at the cusp of, of that change. And so one of the things that the internet did was it, it changed the game for magicians because, right. you know, when you see a magician live now, if you say, hey, how did you do that? By the time I'm halfway through saying, I'm not allowed to tell you, they already found the answer on YouTube. Of course. So it's it's great that you mentioned Joshua J. I I, I heard some uh, some rumoring, although I didn't know that you actually did a project with with him. Is that true? It is true, but no one has ever seen it, including me. <laughs> oh, that's so mysterious. So I went to see him uh, a week and a half ago, and his little show. Joshua J. is an artful magician who, at the time of this conversation, is currently running his show, Six Impossible Things, in New York. And it's a very big show, but only 24 people get to see it. Right. Um, and at the end of the show, he came over and thanked me for the project we did together. And I confessed to him, I remembered the project, but I didn't remember him. That I just knew some mysterious magician who I'd never heard of wanted to do a thing with me. And then it's been five years. So it's when I didn't hear back from him, I completely lost track of it. Um, his show is fascinating because, well, okay. I don't want to go too deep into the whole magic thing, but I had dinner two months ago with somebody who lives next door to Harrison Ford. And he was in the room when Harrison Ford and David Blaine did the trick with the orange. Mm. Why does... David Blaine need to do the trick with Harrison Ford? And the answer is because obviously Harrison Ford is not a stooge, right? That obviously celebrity means that we are watching something super real, even though ironically, celebrity is always fake. And the alternative is to do what Joshua Jay is doing, which is there's only 24 people in the room. So again, it has to feel real because I was only six feet away from him when he did the deck transfer. And I saw, I didn't see any signs of trouble. It was magic. So yeah. yeah, magicians have to do a different thing now. And the thing they can't do is no one knows how I did it. 
I, I had no idea when I originally discovered your work, obviously, that you were, and w- which is when I was still a full-time magician uh, before the kind of career pivot that I made over the last few years. I, I, and then I, I picked up, and we're going to, I'm sure, get plenty into, into This Is Marketing. And I was so excited that six pages in, you have a whole case study mentioned about Penguin Magic, which is, I remember the day Penguin Magic hit the internet, and I'll never forget the change for magicians. And I realized that, wow, it's been a long time since I've gone to or bought anything from Penguin Magic. Why haven't I been there in a while? And, and you, you nailed the reason in the book. Can you, can you take us through that? Because this moves us back into marketing. Okay. So, well, we've been talking about marketing the whole time. But anyway, Achar figured out that there's two kinds of people who buy magic tricks. There are professionals and there are amateurs. And professionals only need 15 tricks because you're doing it to a new crowd every night. So you got your 15 tricks and that's it. Amateurs need new tricks all the time because you only have 10 audience members and they're tired of you. So you've got to go get more stuff. So he made the intelligent decision to create a place where the people who are going to buy a trick a week will buy their trick a week. How do you get them to buy it? Well, it's pretty cool. The videos are really well made. And the only way to find out how the trick is done is to buy it. So he creates tension, the tension of how was that done? The magician can watch the video 10, 15, 20 times. And I have fallen into this trap. I have seen how it is done and then I have not bought it. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, well, if it couldn't fool me, I don't even want it. But <laughs> if I can't see how it's done, then I often buy it. And I've probably bought you know, 90 tricks from them at $20 each. That's a good customer. And so the argument that I make in the case study If I hadn't found Penguin Magic, I would have had to invent them because it's such a perfect example of minimum viable audience, talking to the tribe, creating tension, elevating status roles, and on and on and on and on. And people say, I don't like when you talk about smallest viable audience. Well, smallest doesn't mean small. And in the case of Penguin, I am sure he makes enough money to buy himself a new Tesla every couple of weeks. He doesn't, but he could. Because it's not small, it's just smallest viable audience. Yeah, I mean, as as uh, mass markets go, magic isn't one of them, but there's there's enough, right? Yeah, exactly. And and there's way more amateurs than there are professionals, that's for sure. And uh, magic has that has that beauty. And I think one of the things that Penguin did um, is they also helped push education in magic forward by by utilizing the tools of the internet and. If you had to ask me to pick one single piece of work from your just prolific career that goes on and on and on, it would be a real, real difficult toss up for me between Lynchpin, which like profoundly impacted me in a really personal way. Um, And I think my favorite, which I'd have to go with, it's Stop Stealing Dreams. And Maybe you can flesh it out, but for for those listening, Stop Stealing Dreams, it exists in a couple of different mediums, right? It was a, a TED Talk and also a PDF, I think. Is it still available? It started as a typed up rant that was on my blog. Now it's on Medium and there's a PDF. Okay. And then someone asked me to do a TEDx and I did it exactly one time. I've never done it before since. That went on to become an awfully popular TEDx talk. And now I've made uh, a print version that I just gave out 10,000 copies two days ago at the Association for Talent Development. But the print edition isn't for sale. Wow, no kidding. So the main idea 
is the question, it's all revolving around the question, what is school for? And I, I remember the first time I watched the the TEDx talk and you asked that question and I had to pause the video because I didn't know, I didn't have an answer. I couldn't think of an answer. And I didn't think I had ever heard anybody ask that question or anything like it in my entire life. My my dad's a professor. My aunt is a math teacher. Like all my friends are teachers. Right. Why is that question important? Well, so we're going to spend 12 years of your life and a trillion dollars every year to do a thing. And we call it school. Now, if I'm going to build a bridge, I know exactly what the bridge is for. And if I'm going to make macaroni and cheese, I know exactly what macaroni and cheese is for. Why can't we answer this question? How do you know if you're doing a good job if you're a math teacher? Because the purpose of math class, I hope we can agree, the purpose of math class is not to create a generation that can all do calculus. Because no one does calculus. Even mathematicians don't do a lot of calculus. So what is the purpose of math class? And how can I tell if you're doing a good job? Now, if the purpose of school is to get A's, then let's just give everyone an A. That's obviously not the purpose of school. (laughs) Maybe the purpose of school is to sort people into buckets so we can give some of them prizes and punish the other ones. Hmm, I'm not sure that's worth a trillion (laughs) dollars. Maybe the purpose of school is um, to have tests so that we can force people to comply. And in fact, I think that is the current purpose of school. I think school was invented to create compliant, obedient humans. And there are very few people in the school industrial complex who are willing to admit that, but that's what they do all day. The second half of my argument is, if that's really what school is for, is that what we need? Do we have a shortage of compliant humans? Because if we don't have a shortage, why are we trying to make more of them? So... A question that comes up then is, what do you think formal education is going to look like in the next 10 years? Because I I chat, I had a, a te- my TEDx organizer, who's also a high school history teacher, he was on, um, it was one of the first episodes of, of the first season of the podcast. And he's got some fascinating ideas about school. And I pushed him on that a little bit because it feels like we're in the middle of, or we're about to be in the middle of a revolution in formal education. Oh yeah. That it's going to fall apart really soon. For sure. And he, he doesn't think so. In spite of all of his interesting ideas about school, his, his thought was there's a purpose to school that has nothing to do with what most people are talking about. And it's that kids have a place to go where adults supervise them in a safe environment. Yep. I, I agree with that. Okay. I think that homeschooling done beautifully is really cool, but it is not the answer because socialization is missing. Mm-hmm. And socialization fuels culture and public school matters a lot. That's different than saying you should go a quarter million dollars in debt to get a mediocre education at a slightly famous college so we can put you into a bucket so that as you're trying to pay off your debt, you don't get paid very well to do a job that a computer can do better than you because that's where we are right now. There's too many people being churned out to go into the bucket that too few good jobs want to come from. And we are using that bucket to ensure compliance for the five years before that, from seventh grade on. So what we're ending up doing is building mini prisons for 10-year-olds to hold on to them until they're freed to go get a minimum wage job and suffer, or until they are freed to maybe 
go to a school that's a lot like high school, but with more binge drinking, where they're going to end up in debt and not actually ever learn to learn. So the crisis is going to happen for a couple of reasons. One, the people who can most afford to leave the system are already leaving the system. They're leaving the system to learn on their own and then to get the kind of jobs where credentials aren't worth very much. That's all the people who, the Bill Gates and the Mark Zuckerbergs, but also the people who aren't even going to college in the first place, right? Um, but over time, more and more people are going to say, if I want to learn something, school is one of the worst ways to learn it. I'm going to learn it somewhere else. Because, for example, every course at MIT is available online for free. So if you want to put in the effort, like Game of Thrones style effort, <laughs> you could get through four years of MIT in a year and know at least as much about what's taught as the students at MIT. And you finished in a year for free. Now, what you're not going to get is the socialization. And that's part of the reason why we have the Alt-MBA and the other workshops, because it's not the same as spending five years at Natick, but it is a form of socialization where you are surrounding yourself with people who get the joke and who are encouraging you as you move forward. So what I believe is going to happen is that very big institutions that overbuilt their gymnasiums and their campuses and their faculty are going to go bankrupt because students are going to say, this isn't worth it. And the students are going to say, my work is what I'm going to get hired on. So I'm going to get better at my work, not at getting my certificate. And that's what your online courses, uh, the, the Akimbo workshops, right? The Akimbo courses. Yeah. So we're that- not aiming right now at people under 20 mm-hmm. because I had to start somewhere. Right. And so I'm starting with adult learning because adult learning, we are used to there no, being no prize and no obedience in, a, in adult learning. So if I can figure out how to create a place where people change and they look back and say, that was the greatest bargain in my lifetime, then maybe I can do it again. Just for those who may not have any experience with your online courses and they hear online course and they just get this idea in exactly. their head, right? They've, they've gone to Skillshare or Masterclass or Udemy or any of these. Uh, I've been through two of them now and I would do them over and over and over. And I hope to take all of them at some point as I, as I can allot time for it um, because they require, not because I can't make time in my life, but because the specific the way you leverage the time really matters. It's not enough to pop into them right. and post my answer and disappear. You have to commit to the to the conversation. So can you speak to that for, for a moment? Yeah, so I was the number one teacher on Skillshare for years. And on Udemy, I am still, I think, tops in my category. There's nothing wrong with those sites if that's the way you learn. Here's 50 videos, have fun. And some of the most successful courses there are things like Needlepoint, which is like, oh, I got to watch someone Needlepoint. Now I know how to need a point. No, actually you don't, but the videos were fun to watch. Okay. But I didn't want to just do that. I wanted to actually change people. So in the marketing seminar, which launches in June, we've run it six times before. It's 50 or 60 lessons, but each lesson's only five minutes long. So what are you spending the rest of your time doing? Well, we only put up a lesson every two days. So in between that, you're writing in response to my prompts. And the writing is not about me. It is not, did you do the reading? It's not, can you prove that the answer is C, not D? The writing is about you and your dream and your work and where you are seeking to go. And so it's basically an extended three to five month business plan writing exercise in which you are constantly just talking about you and your work and your fears and your dreams and your customers and your model. 
and you're doing it next to thousands of other people who are fe- giving you feedback all the time. So since you and I started talking a few minutes ago, more than 100 posts have gone up. And this happens 24 hours a day. Around the world, people are reading your work and responding to it. And you can't find that anywhere else. It's safe and it's valuable. It is really valuable. And, and they're all built on connections. So I want to I wanna steer into kind of the, the main thrust of what I'm trying to do on this, on this show. Let me start by asking, you are so generous with uh, your, your, your time among everything else. And I can only imagine because of my own struggle as I've gotten more visible with having to choose when to say yes to meetings and when to say yes to phone calls and can I pick your brain and can we get a cup of coffee? I'm having enough trouble. I can't imagine. And here you are <laughs> taking 45 minutes or an hour of your precious time with me, which I'm so grateful for. And everybody who gets your time is so grateful for. But how do you balance your need to get to get your message out, to keep ringing that bell, to make that change with putting a premium on your own time? You know, the word balance is a really tricky word because I don't think there's such a thing. There's just time. There's just where you are and what you do. So it doesn't make sense for me to have to do something that feels like a sacrifice. I try to do things that are part of the big thing. You get to pick what your big thing is going to be. So, you know, the people who complain about work-life balance. Well, one of the reasons they say that is because work sucks the life out of them and it's a grind, but they do it because they need the money to live the lifestyle. Well, maybe they should change their lifestyle so they could have work that makes them feel alive. Because then they wouldn't need to worry about work-life balance because they would just have life. In terms of being able to be generous with my time, I can't possibly be as generous with my time as I would like to be because I only get the hours I get. What I have found is that people respect a no way more than they like a maybe. And if someone asks me to be on their podcast, I will almost certainly say no, thank you, with an emphasis on thank you, because I just can't. And it's not personal. It's just, I can't, no. And if they ask again, then it's definitely no, because I don't reward persistence. And I'm okay with this because there's no other option. I'd rather do that than give lots and lots of people maybes and then have them make plans and me disappoint them. I was, uh, I was chatting with, uh, with somebody recently about, actually, I think somebody that you also uh, know or have worked with. You, you seem to know almost everybody. It is pretty unbelievable. Every time I'm chatting with somebody and they've, they've uh, crossed paths with you, uh, Zoe Chance, my uh, friend and colleague up at uh, Yale. Oh, Yale. Sure. I like her, but also just a little aside on irrelevant marketing. There's almost no first name better than Zoe. Everyone will remember your first name forever. It's friendly. It's open. It's charismatic. And the last name, Chance? Really? (laughs) Really? Like, I mean, she's a spy. I'm sure she works for some spy agency somewhere. Zoe Chance, make the movie. (laughs) I said the exact same thing with a very, I met her on a plane when she said she teaches influence and persuasion and her name was Zoe Chance. I said, you are not really Dr. Chance in teaching influence and persuasion. <laughs> Give me a break, you know. Um, but she and I got on the topic unexpectedly of the power of no. This is something that came up in the freelancers workshop from, from you know, one of your Akimbo uh, courses. And, you know, 
saying no, I, I think it is sometimes the most generous thing you can do. I've had people that I really hoped would say yes to a request I made and they said no, but they said it just matter of factly. No, unfortunately, I can't do that. Thank you. Yep. And that was it. There was no justification. There was no not right now because then I would have followed up three weeks. I said, well, one would be a good time. So I, I think there's something to be said for that. It's really easy to connect with somebody that you already kind of agree with fundamentally, um, especially whatever, you know, in whatever niche you're talking about. But often you don't agree with someone. And occasionally you have no idea where they're coming from. This right. happened in American politics in the past couple of years. It happens between managers and employees. How do you connect with someone that you don't understand? Um, it is possible that there's someone on earth who I totally understand, but I have never met them. Everybody does some, some people like milk chocolate. I still find this impossible to believe. <laughs> but there must be something about their humanity that we have in common. There must be some, like, do you hope that your kids will have a good life? Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that. Do you get satisfaction from going for a walk on a nice spring day? Well, yeah, why? Let's talk about how that feels. Do you uh, like change or fear change? Because I could talk to either group of people and be able to make assertions about their life. These are strategies, these aren't tactics. Along the way, someone may come up with the tactic that we should burn as much coal as we possibly can to get as much electricity as we possibly can, because if we get richer, then we'll have more resources, and then we'll be able to build new technology, and the world will be saved. Now, you and I can disagree about that, because I think that's foolish. But we can both agree that you're doing it for the same reason I'm doing it, which is you care about your unborn grandchildren. And so let's start there. And then the second half of it, which is where it often falls apart for me, is do you actually believe in the scientific method or are you just pretending to believe in the scientific method? If you don't believe in the scientific method, I have plenty of time for you and there are lots of things we can talk about. But if you are pretending, it's going to take me a few minutes to discover that you've chosen this path because it usually gets you through many engagements. But my desire to connect with you as a fellow scientific thinker is going to ultimately fail. And so I have, that's where it usually falls apart for me. I had someone in my office the other day and she'd written a book. So I was being uh, congratulatory to her. And it was a, one of those books about how money uh, seems to be attracted to people who are ready for it. It's a, the, the, philo the, the psychology, the philosophy of being open to getting past the resistance. And I said, but you don't think that money is actually aware of how you're thinking <laughs> and she said, oh, no, I am. I am. And I said, so how does that work? How does my thinking get to the money? And then the whole thing fell apart after that. Because <laughs> I just, I care. I'm a trained engineer. I care very much about how things actually work. And so if someone has persuaded themselves to believe in the other kind of magic, it's harder for me to find connection. That is a huge Achilles heel of mine. While we're on the thread of, of connections, you know, I think there's just so often there's there's nothing more exciting and like exhilarating, life affirming for me, at least, than when you connect with someone you didn't expect, than when you meet someone on a plane or in line at Starbucks. Um, and it can have profound impact 
that doesn't mean they happen to be the hiring manager at the job of your dreams. That can yep. happen. But um, do you have a, a story for uh, for us? Yeah. And I, this may surprise you that my story isn't like most people's stories. <laughs> and I hope that that's okay. I, I have no doubt. Okay. So here's how the story goes. Uh, I used to be a book packager. And what book packagers do for a living is we invent books, complicated books, almanacs, books that normal humans, individual authors couldn't possibly create, right? And as a result, I dealt with thousands and thousands and thousands of publishers and authors and people who were in the book industry. I did this for years. I did 120 books in 10 years. And uh, it was a great privilege to be able to do this. Okay, so that's the setup. Having gotten 800 rejections in the first year, having struggled for a decade before I had my first really big bestseller, maybe five years, it was hard and there was it was personal because you were in front of people who didn't understand necessarily what you were trying to do. Okay, so it's years later and um, I am in Toronto and they canceled my flight home. So I sleep on a friend's couch. He had a dog, so it was not pleasant. And then the next morning at 6 a.m., I'm at the airport and um, we're at the edge of the terminal. We're the only plane there, 6.30 in the morning, flying back to my little town, White Plains, New York. And I see a guy across the terminal, like two rows across, and I realize that I have offended him. And I can't figure out who he is from my past, but he's someone from my past. And I did a, a, de- a bad thing, and he has never forgiven me, but I cannot for the life of me remember who he is. So he gets up to go to the bathroom, and I run over to his luggage to look at the luggage tag. <laughs> no tags on his luggage. <laughs> so they call the flight. And meanwhile, I've got my laptop open and I'm Googling. I don't even know what I'm Googling. People Seth Godin offended. <laughs> and finding nothing. So he gets on the plane. He's two people in front of me. And I say to the, to the person taking the boarding passes, that guy's an old colleague of mine, but I can't remember his name. Can you tell me? She said, no, I'm not allowed. It's confidentiality. I'm like, what are you talking about? You announce people's names at the airport all the time. She says, no. But as I look, the, 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 the cards are just at the right angle. I can see that his first name starts with S-T and his last name ends with C-I. It's all I know. So I'm like, Steve, Steve, Steve. And I'm like, on... But the CI, that was helping Scrabble play, you know, and I'm right behind him on the plane. And I only have like one more minute of Wi-Fi before the plane is going to take off. Now it's a matter of life or death. I must (laughs) discharge this guilt, this shame that I've been carrying around. I've never told this story in public, by the way. And I find it. And I stand up and I reach over the seat like this and I say, hi, my name's Seth Godin. And you're Stanley Tucci, and you're not mad at me. And he looks at me sort of quizzically, and he says, what? (laughs) And I shake his hand, and I go sit down next to him. I said, look, I'm not going to bother you the whole flight, but I need to tell you this story, Mr. Tucci, because this interaction is having an impact on me, and I'll tell you why. So it turns out that Clifford Irving was one of the most famous book packagers of the 1970s. And he was struggling at the time, but then he realized that Howard Hughes, who was the 
Jeff Bezos meets Elon Musk of his era was a nut job and that Howard Hughes was afraid of publicity of any kind, would not shake hands, carried a thousand Kleenex with literally a thousand with him anywhere he went and would leave every hotel room filled with Kleenex. He wouldn't touch any surface. He was nuts. So Clifford Irving decided to write Howard Hughes' autobiography, figuring he could sell it for millions of dollars and Howard Hughes would never come out to um, deny that it was his because Howard Hughes was so afraid. And Irving successfully sold the book probably for a million dollars. And then Howard Hughes, I don't know why Clifford Irving never realized this, calls his lawyer and his lawyer comes out and says, this is not an authorized biography. It has nothing to do with Howard Hughes. Clifford Irving ends up going to jail. And it's a great book. Irving wrote the book himself, of course, called Hoax. And they made it into a movie. And in the movie, I'm not making this up, Clifford Irving's office is in the little tiny town where my office was. And they filmed it on the main street of Irvington, New York. My office was like eight blocks away. So I'm watching this movie about a book packager who, yeah, maybe he's a little bit of a hoax, who's offending people right and left, and who ends up going to jail, my worst nightmare. And um, you know who his publisher is? Stanley Tucci. (laughs) So the reason that I thought Stanley Tucci was offended by me is he was offended by the actor who played Clifford Irving, who I think was Richard Gere or something. And I was so sucked into this movie, I thought I was a character in the movie. So Stanley and I have not kept in touch. That's probably his choice, not mine. But what it did was it helped me discharge a whole bunch of things I had been thinking about failing because I failed for a long time as a book packager, but never once did I do something I was ashamed of, that there were projects that didn't work. There were projects that blew up. People threatened to have me arrested. People threw me out of their office. I fired my biggest client and I'm proud of all the choices that we made, but I needed to meet Stanley Tuchley to be able to say that and to be able to overcome some of the stuff that was holding me back because it's not easy to speak up and go out on your own. And the world works overtime to make you feel like you made a mistake. And Stanley has forgiven me. And so it's okay. You're right. That is not a story I was expecting to hear. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, I think you've, you've stumped my ability to ask a follow-up question. Um, I guess the only thing going through my, my head is that that just reminds me of that, you know, that old quote, um, which I feel like is not attributed to anybody anymore. And that's just, you know, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. I like that. Yeah. And uh, it felt like you just, you needed to, uh, you needed to see that. So, well, thank you for telling me that. That's, that's amazing. I think everybody, uh, especially folks who are like me, um, a little bit of a Seth Godin junkie and have listened to about every interview and conversation you've ever had, we'll, we'll at least enjoy hearing something totally fresh. So uh, much appreciated on behalf of everyone. And speaking of which, I as we start to wrap up here, I have a few questions that were sent in, if it's all right with you, by uh, some of my audience. I didn't want to hog all the time to let's, myself. Let's try. Speed round. We'll go for it. 
Fantastic. And I'm going to kick it off with, this is a personal bias. So I'm going to kick it off with a question sent in by my little sister. Okay. Uh, we got a big age gap and she is still, she's heading into her senior year of college. And so her question- Okay. She secured for herself for this coming semester uh, in the fall, a marketing internship at uh, the, she's out in Montana at school, at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. Sure. And which is really cool opportunity for her. And what they're asking her to do is to develop a social media following. They're, they've been very clear about their goals. They are not trying to sell more tickets. They're just trying to, it sounds like, take the audience that they already have that fills in their summer and stay in touch, build a community outside of the main part of the year. So her question is, how do you develop a social media following with low to no budget? Well, I don't think a budget helps at all. Uh, I think the important thing is to not try to be a Kardashian. Uh, There is one route, which is to do what the Kardashians do, which is to appeal to the largest possible group of people, uh, compromising any standards that you have to get there. And there needs to be Kardashians in the world, but it doesn't have to be her. The alternative is to say, what's the smallest viable audience? Who are the people who, A, care so much about what we are doing that they will set an alert for what we do? And B, and this is hard, will see their status rise if they tell other people. So if you think about a zoo that's got a pregnant elephant, we've seen them use that to generate millions and millions of impressions because A, there are people who love the whole baby elephant, when's it gonna be born game? And B, their lives get better if their friends are into the game too. And so you create these dynamics. So it could be a wolf sighting alert. It could be um, various interactions people could have about naming wolves or wolf trivia or something where I'm going to feel more connected because you were there and my status will go up if I tell the others. This is the opposite of what Oreo bragged about with their stupid tweet during the Super Bowl. Here Seth is referring to the 2013 Super Bowl in which a blackout occurred, leaving half the stadium light and half the stadium dark. Oreo responded near instantly on social media with a tweet captioned, you can still dunk in the dark. Because it didn't sell any Oreos. It didn't raise anybody's status except for some marketing commentators. And the chances that there's going to be another blackout where you can use that trick are very low. So you do the opposite of that. You say if there are 3,000 people, just 3,000, who care enough about this, that they're in it and they each tell five people, we win. Smallest viable audience. Beautiful. Perfect. And uh, for what it's worth, when she switched into marketing, like the very next week, a copy of This Is Marketing showed up from me <laughs> to her in the mail. And I said, when I talked to her, because, you know, she's she's in college still. And I said, listen, this is probably not for you right now, but hold on to it. It may be at some point. And when it is the right time, it'll be the best thing you have in your, in your bookshelf. Um, so, okay. I've got an old, old, old acquaintance, somebody I go all the way back to like T-ball with who also attended Williamsville East where we both graduated. It's true, go Flames. Um, Go Flames, worst mascot ever. Uh, (laughs) Although Billy Goats, I like the goats. I think the Billy (laughs) Goats are a good thing. That was the beginning of my high school humiliation. I was humiliated in high school before my high school opened. Because I led the anti-flame contingent at the inauguration of the school, and I lost. Yeah, well, it happens. 
It does. Um, so this comes in from uh, from Will Mason. Uh, he's a relatively new children's book author. Uh, he's writing an LGBTQ series. One or two of them have already been published. Great. It's motivated by his, uh, and this is his words, he's motivated by his lesbian sister and the struggles she endured when coming out and him going through that. Um, he asks, how do I best position my marketing when I'm trying to build an audience? Should I focus my attention on events and speaking, right. kind of with the book as a, as a side, um, social media, or should I just focus on better writing? Here, Seth turned around and started rummaging through his bookshelf, coming back a few moments later with a book in hand. I did the 12 volume set, 18 Pine Street, the first young adult series for black kids with Walter Dean Myers. We sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. So I have a particular expertise in this area. Great. Um, books that sell a lot don't sell by the bag, they sell by the carton. And in this space, you gotta sell them by the carton. And that means you need various intermediaries to eagerly adopt what you're doing. One book signing at a time is gonna eat you up. But if you can figure out how to get a librarian at the Queens Public Schools to buy 100 copies for a bunch of kids to read at a group, you win. And yeah. so I would focus on how do we read together as opposed to how do I find the one in 100 kids who already is LBTGQ, whatever. It's instead saying all 100 of us are going to read this because it's going to open the door for that one kid who needs to be seen. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, you good for one more before we, yep. uh, before we wrap up? Here, here's one because we're going to come back kind of full circle. We started off talking about magic a lot more than I ever, I never expected to bring up magic at all. So you open that door to talk about magic. This is from uh, Nevin. Uh, As an aspiring professional magician just graduating college, how do I establish myself as a linchpin within the entertainment industry? What can I do to stand out in a sea of other magicians? Uh, I think your role model here is not Penn and it's not Teller. <laughs> I think your role model here is Steve Cohen. And Steve Cohen takes a suite at the Waldorf. And I don't know how many tickets do you think he sells? 50 tickets at a time? 50. Mm -hmm. That's it. He is the best in the world at what he does. There aren't very many people who are trying to do what he does, but he picked his smallest viable audience. And that is where he lives. The, the thing that makes magicians frustrated is they think they have to work their way at the bottom, which means birthday parties for four-year-olds, and work their way up. I don't think Steve Cohen ever once did a birthday party for a four-year-old. You yeah, begin yeah. with the group you want to begin with. There are people I know who only do magic at trade shows. They make $200,000 a year. They have to deal with people who are walking by when they're working, but they get to do their work. And so... You need to be very specific, not about the kind of tricks you do, no one cares, but about the kind of person you do them for and the kind of change you seek to make. I, 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 that's a great answer. And I appreciate that because that echoed something I've been telling all of my students in magic, the younger folks that I've been trying to help over the years. Uh, I've been saying it over and over again, my career uh, exploded as a magician when I realized that I didn't have to get better at magic tricks. I didn't have to change my act. I just had to, to tell a more interesting story to a group of people who could afford the prices I wanted to charge. Bingo. 
to to wrap up and give you a chance uh, here um, first again I, I can't I cannot thank you enough for for your time it's a uh, obviously the the work you've done is is impacted the whole world and uh, me in particular so dramatically and it's impacting uh, just as a side note my wife right now who has heard me say your name so many times <laughs> for so long and then. She's a therapist. She's working in mental health, um, uh, community mental health, and thinking about someday going into private practice. And so she's been reading all these books on how to develop a private practice. So when she wants to go in, every single book she reads from someone on going into private practice, she'll go, I'll hear it from the other room. Oh my God. And I'll come in. What? And she's like, they mentioned Seth again. <laughs> she's you're in every book she's reading. So now she's like, do you, do you have linchpin? Do you have purple cow? Do you have, I'm like, yeah, they're, I keep telling you they're all here. <laughs> I have them all. That's great. So, um, so my question then to, to wrap up here is what is the best introduction to your work for somebody who's listening to this and really have, has heard your name, maybe seen your Ted talk, uh, but doesn't know where to start. Oh, I, that's, I write a blog every day. Read that. <laughs> Anywhere else you'd, uh, you'd like to. Well, to I mean, at sethgodin.com, you can see all the stuff. You can find the Akimbo stuff at akimbo.com. But I don't do this to sell things. I do this to make change happen. And there isn't a shortage of Seth in the world. You'll find what you need. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. And uh, just this, this has really been uh, uh, just a, a joy. So thank you. Keep making your ruckus. It really matters. Thank you. I need to finish telling you about the time I bumped into Seth at the airport. Because that's when he taught me the greatest lesson of all. But before I do that, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, there is no magic dust. There's nothing special about Seth or me or anyone. We've all got the same 24 hours in a day. Change happens when we show up with empathy and a desire to make things better. Second, on that note, those 24 hours are the great equalizer. Balance is just how you choose to allocate them. And if you're miserable because you can't find enough time for family and friends, or alternatively because you can't find enough time for work, then consider the choices you've made to end up in that situation. Perhaps rather than balance, what you really need is to redesign your life so that the various elements work together rather than against each other. And finally, it's often our own baggage that holds us back. Find someone who is willing to listen and help you unload life's burdens, whether it's a best friend or significant other, a family member, a therapist, or even Stanley Tucci. Oh, and here's the end of my story. I was so sleep deprived that I lacked any semblance of a filter. So I just blurted out, Seth! He looked up, found the source of the voice, then instantly put on a big smile and made a beeline right towards me. His outstretched hand met mine for a hearty handshake as he looked me in the eye and asked, what can I do for you, sir? Here we are in one of the most stressful possible environments. An airport. He had no idea who I was and was preoccupied with his own adventure. In the midst of all that chaos, Seth's default mode was kindness and generosity, and I'll never forget it. Head to onenewperson.com for the show notes and related links. While you're there, subscribe via your favorite podcast streaming service and consider joining our community email with updates and bonus episodes. I'm Brian Miller. This is One New Person, and we'll see you next time.
Are those new glasses, by the way? Someone stole my glasses on the beach at 6.15 in the morning before I gave a speech. What kind of person does that? I don't know. I had to give a speech without my glasses. I couldn't see anybody. And I had to fly home. So I bought readers. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, these are new glasses. I'm not happy about it. Wow. Well, I don't mean to start off on such a negative note, but I mean, they look great, but I can't believe someone stole your glasses. Well, I guess that's a conversation. If they're listening, shame on them. (laughs) 